Growing up, my son Lachlan uh, was always one to push the boundaries. Uh, I remember him learning to swim. He was about two or three, uh, and like many kids his age, his courage was greater than his ability. Uh, we'd be in the pool together and I'd be holding him in my arms, uh, but he'd thought, uh, he thought he could do it on his own without my help, and so he'd push away from my arms. Well, I thought I'd teach him a lesson. I let him go. And then watch as he'd slowly sink below the surface with this surprised look on his face. I'd leave him for a second or so and then I'd reach out and pull him up again, spluttering and coughing. Uh, this time, though, he would cling firmly onto my arms, those same arms he'd pushed away from earlier. Uh, he'd learned his lesson, at least for a little while. Jonah is something like that. He wants to be independent from God. He doesn't want to do what God says. Do you remember last week? God sends him east, Jonah heads west. God says, get up, Jonah goes down. God says, proclaim, Jonah stays quiet. And in the end, he asks to be thrown into the stormy ocean and he begins to sink just like Lachlan did. Jonah would rather drown than go to Nineveh, rather than uh, do things God's way. But as we pick up the story, again, as Jonah sinks below the waves, as everything goes quiet, as his life flashes before his eyes, he has a change of heart. He realises that he doesn't like being independent. Perhaps it's not such a good idea to run away from God. And he finally calls out to God but has taken the threat of death for him to pray. Chapter 1 finishes with God sending a great fish to swallow Jonah and somehow Jonah is alive rather than being fish food. And then from inside the fish, finally we hear Jonah pray. It's a prayer that reminds us of a psalm. In fact, it's a combination of bits and pieces of something like 30 different psalms. Now, the first thing you notice is that it's a psalm set in the middle of narrative. Here's a poem, and it's very different from the prose style of writing that's both before and after it. It sort of sticks out, a little bit like songs do in musicals. I've got a bit of a confession to make. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of musicals. I love the music, I love the emotion and the storytelling. But lots of people think uh, the whole idea of musicals is weird. Uh, characters just burst into song at the most inappropriate times. Uh, the scene is the middle of a deadly war zone or, or maybe a greasy mechanics garage or a vicious street fight. And all of a sudden an orchestra starts playing from somewhere and everybody begins singing and dancing. Uh, there's this jarring juxtaposition between uh, the words that are being sung and, and the setting. And that's what it's like here in Jonah chapter 2. We've got this strange, unrealistic setting. Jonah is sloshing around in the dark, in the belly of a fish, his life's threatened, and he begins to pray or sing poetry. Now, at first reading, it sounds like a good prayer. 
But I want to suggest that when you look a little closer, the writer is actually, he's making fun of Jonah. He's mocking him. This is a parody or a satire. And we learn about, uh, we learn as much about Jonah from what he doesn't say as what he does say. So let's begin with the start of the prayer, verse 2. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Here, Jonah is remembering what happened to him when he was thrown overboard. He was about to drown. And so he called out to God. That's a word that we've seen a few times already in chapter 1. Uh, right back in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, God commanded Jonah to call out to Nineveh, preach to them. It's the same word, but, but Jonah didn't. Down in verse 6, the sea captain tells him to, to call out to his God, to pray to his God, but he still won't call out. He's God's prophet, but he won't pray. We see that everyone else on the ship is, is calling out to God. They're praying, just not Jonah. But now, finally, when his life is on the line, Jonah decides it's time to call out. He doesn't care enough for Nineveh to call out for them. He doesn't care enough for the sailors to call out for them. But he does care enough for his own miserable skin. And as he thinks back on his calling to God and then God's rescue, as he thinks back from the relative safety of the belly of the fish, he begins to pray again. A prayer of thanksgiving that God heard his call. And as I said, it's a prayer that seems to borrow bits from a whole bunch of psalms. All the psalms, perhaps, that he can remember. To me, it's something like a, a Frankenstein prayer. It, it's bits and pieces of this and that stuck together to create a monster. It's almost like he can't think of anything to pray for himself. It, it's like he's, he's praying from the textbook. Like some people who, when they don't know what to pray, they pray the Lord's Prayer or the 23rd Psalm or a Hail Mary as if the words themselves have some sort of magic power and they don't have any sort of relationship with God to pray their own words. For example, uh, it seems like there's bits of Psalm 69 in Jonah's prayer. Psalm 69 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters, the floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. Or Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And even though Jonah is running hard in the opposite direction to God, and even though he hasn't bothered to pray for anyone else, even though he's a hypocrite who cares more for himself than for anyone else, the amazing thing is that God answers this call. He answers Jonah's prayer. He hears and he delivers. Verse 2, Jonah says, You listen to my cry. 
He didn't deserve it, but God answered. What an amazing, merciful, saving God we have. And notice what flashes before Jonah's eyes. Verse 4, most people, when they're faced with death, we're, we're, uh, we're told that they say their life flashes before their eyes, the things that matter most. But as Jonah sinks down into the waves, look at what uh, his thoughts, uh, where his thoughts turn. Verse 4. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. As Jonah is about to die, it's, it's not his own sin he's concerned about. It, it's not the salvation of Nineveh. It's not zeal for God's glory. It's not a desire to obey him. Jonah wants to be back in Jerusalem, in the temple. Maybe he's thinking of Psalm 65, which is also about the holy temple. Uh, Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We're filled with good things of your house, of your holy temple. The temple, sure, it's a great place to be. Uh, God gave uh, his people wonderful things, forgiveness and blessings all centred around the temple, who wouldn't want to be there? The problem is that's not where God wants him. He's like the the reluctant tourist uh, on his first overseas trip, but everything's gone wrong. The the hotel loses his reservation, his wallet's been stolen, the, the food is too spicy, he's wet, he's cold, he's miserable. And so he says, I just want to be home. I want my own bed, I I want a nice cup of tea. And that's Jonah. He doesn't want to be here in the belly of the fish. He he doesn't want to be in Nineveh. He wants to be home, close to God, in the temple. Which is ironic, really, because Jonah's the one who's run away from God. And he's completely forgotten the reason that he is where he is. He's run away from God... There's no recognition of his own sin and rebellion. He just wants everything to go back to the way it was. Verse 5 and 6, Jonah reflects some more on God's rescue. I'd sunk to the bottom of the ocean, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. And then verse 7, he recalls how when his life was fading, he remembered God and he prayed. His prayer came to God in his holy temple. Now, it all sounds fine. He certainly described God accurately. And it sounds like he had a change of heart. It sounds like he's willing to get back on the job of uh, obeying God and delivering his message. That he recognises that Nineveh deserves a chance. But then we get to verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. He's praised God that God has shown him grace, but he just doesn't think it right that God should show grace to anyone else. That word for grace is an important one. In Hebrew, it's hesed, sometimes translated as God's covenant faithfulness he shows to his people. And here in verse 8, Jonah is saying that Gentiles, people who worship idols, like those sailors 
who tried hard to save him, they've made their choice. They've burned their bridges. They've chosen their path. They don't deserve to experience God's grace, the grace he shows to others. Verse 8 shows what Jonah really thinks of God's command that he go to Nineveh and preach grace. And as we look at verse 8, we realise what Jonah hasn't said so far in his prayer. There's no repentance. There's no recognition of his sin. He hasn't admitted that he's disobeyed God. He's praying all of these copied, mimicked words as if he's a righteous saint bearing the scorns of wicked men, like the Psalms he quotes. This prayer, it's, it's like an apology that's not an apology. Like when someone says, I'm sorry, but you. I'm sorry that you're upset by my behaviour. <laughs> They're not apologies. And I want to suggest that uh, Jonah's prayer is like that. Our suspicions are confirmed when we get to verse 9, when Jonah tells us what he plans to do next. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Sinners deserve judgment. They don't deserve grace, but not Jonah. Jonah's been shown grace. His prayers have been answered. And so he wants to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Not a sacrifice for sin, mind you. He doesn't think he needs to repent. He says he'll make good his vow. So what's his vow? Is his vow to go to Nineveh? I don't think so. He's shown no indication, no inclination that he, he wants to go to Nineveh. So what is it that he's vowed? Well, the first part of the verse says that he's going to offer a sacrifice. Back in verse 4, he, he vowed that he, he wants to make it back to God's temple. I think that's what he really wants. I think his plan is, if, if he can possibly get out of this big fish, is to head straight back to Jerusalem to offer his thanks sacrifice at the temple. It, it's not to go to Tarshish. It's not to go to Nineveh. He, he just wants everything to go back to normal. This is laughable. It's a prayer that's not a prayer, a confession that's not a confession. So what does God think of Jonah's prayer? He doesn't even need words. Verse 10, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. God and the fish can't put up with Jonah's sanctimonious, self-centred rubbish for another minute. God's called him to warn Nineveh. He's chased him. He's turned circumstances upside down to turn Jonah back on himself, back onto God's path. And Jonah thinks he can just head back home and everything can go back to normal. Here at the end of chapter 2, halfway through the book, Jonah is alive, but he's still a long way from God. He's a long way from Nineveh and a long way from home. And we'll see how the story 
continues next week. So what lessons do we learn from Jonah? When we look at Jonah, we're looking in a mirror. It's humorous. It's meant to be humorous and satirical. As we chuckle at Jonah's hypocritical blindness, at his unrepentant self-centeredness, his judgmentalism, his stubbornness, we're forced to recognise ourselves. We're forced to ask whether we are more interested in our own self-protection than we are with growing God's kingdom. More interested in being comfortable among the saints than being confronted by the lost. And particularly here in chapter 2, we learn there's a huge difference between knowing the truth and actually living the truth. Between talking the talk and walking the walk. Jonah knew the vocabulary. He knew the Psalms. He knew the temple. He knew the right things to say. He knew what God was like, but it didn't seem like his heart was in it. He knew it, but he didn't live it. He knew God was merciful and compassionate and forgiving. But, it, it didn't, but he didn't back that up by offering that compassion to others. He talked the talk, but he wasn't walking the walk. And there's a bit of that in all of us. We know that God is the God of the whole world, that he deserves the loyalty of people everywhere, Yet we act as if he's only interested in our little group and no one else's welcome. We know that God loved the, the whole world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. We know that, but we act as if God only loves our little group and he wants to keep the message to himself. We know that God can forgive any sin, that his capacity for patience and mercy are far greater than our human capacity for sin. But we act as if some people are too far gone for God to reach. We pretend they don't exist. We don't bother with them. We feel we have nothing to offer them. We sing and speak of God's mercy we rejoice in his forgiveness for us while we sit comfortably in a little Christian ghetto as people all around us continue blindly in rebellion against God. Jonah wanted to head back to the temple to offer his sacrifice, but God wants instead for us to offer a sacrifice of obedience do we prefer to be warm and comfortable and controlled rather than obedient and uncomfortable and just a little bit out of control? Let's think of a concrete example. How should we treat the many needy people around us here in Ashfield? They're often difficult, smelly, language barriers. It's easy to just walk past them, pretend they're not there and hope someone else will deal with them. I think I know what Jonah would do, but what does God want us to do? Jonah was content with offering a sacrifice of thanks 
But God wanted far more than that. He wanted a life of sacrifice. He wanted deeds, not just words. Do you love the lost as much as God does? That's the question the book of Jonah asks us. Do you love the lost as much as God does? In John chapter 4, Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman. She's a rejected, shamed sinner. But Jesus offers her living water, the true life of forgiveness and restoration. She goes into the town and she says to everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. And they come out of the town with her and they walk towards the well where Jesus and his disciples are waiting. The disciples are focused on their lunch. But instead Jesus turns his eyes to the crowds who are walking towards him and he says to his disciples in John 4.35, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Are our eyes open to fields ripe for harvest? Do we know the people who are out there in Ashfield, in our streets, over our fence? Do we talk to our neighbours, our friends, the people in the supermarket queue? As hundreds of people walk past our footpath every day, do, do we see them? When we see them, we'll begin to know them. When we begin to know them, we'll see, we'll recognise that they're ripe for harvest. God calls us. God sees them. He calls us to open our eyes to see. And then he calls us to go. Will you listen? Will you see? Will you go? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved us miraculously, bringing us from death to life, from enemies to friends, from hopelessness to hope. And yet so often we fail to recognise that same offer that goes to people everywhere. We believe it, but we fail to live it. Forgive us, we pray. Help us to be obedient to your call. Amen.